Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 30. And behold, a man came up to him, being Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect or complete, go, sell what, possess, what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man... This is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on, the glo on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would bless the reading and the teaching of it now, as only you can do. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So let's remind ourselves where we are in the context of Matthew. We are in Jesus' last discourse before we get to the end times, before his, this is how it all plays out at the end. This is his last first Advent discourse, if you will, meaning this is the last time he's teaching on anything that involves this side of the cross. As he is going through this community, this community discourse, we looked at the last two weeks, because it took us a while, because we had some great discussion going on, about a proper view of divorce. As, and then we looked at letting the children come to Jesus and how that kind of connected with the divorce concept, but it also connects tonight with this rich young ruler. So as we look at this rich young ruler or this rich young man, depending on how your Bible has a heading, we're going to consider a couple things. One is the controversy that surrounds this conversation. Then we'll see Jesus' commentary on the subject. And then we'll see the disciples' desire for compensation as a result of what it is that they've been doing. So let's ask ourselves this as we set our minds in the context of Matthew 19. Who is it that was left coming to Jesus in our previous passage? Who is it that's coming to Jesus to talk to him, to interact with him? Who's the very last group of people? Jubal? The Pharisees. Not the Pharisees, the very last passage. I mean the last couple verses. Do you know who it is, Malachi? Um, I would say it was Jesus. Yeah, that's what I want to know is who's coming to talk to Jesus. It's not the Pharisees. Look at your Bible. Look at the previous passages, previous verses before verse 16. 
Who's coming to talk to Jesus? Who's coming to interact with him? This is where you start at verse 15 and start reading backwards. Children. Children. Okay, great. So we left off with these children coming to Jesus. He takes them up in his arms and he blesses them. And the people are like trying to be like, no, don't let those kids come over here and bother Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, you can let them come. Now, we're, con we're contrasting a group of people that want to come to Jesus, who Jesus accepts, wraps them up in his arms and blesses them, and a man who really ends up ultimately rejecting Jesus. So let's look at this controversy. Verse 16 says this, And behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? You should know this, um, Zach Erling. The word teacher in English for us, what's teacher in the Greek? What would a Jew call a teacher? They got a word for it. Yeah, it's a rabbi. So he comes to him and he says, Rabbi. Now, what do we automatically understand from that? When someone comes to them and acknowledges a position, what's this man doing for Jesus? Teaching. Jesus is the one teaching. So, what's this man acknowledging Jesus as? A teacher, an authority in his life. And he wants to know this question. Someone tell me, what's this man's question? This guy is young and he is wealthy. What's his question, Brian? He comes to Jesus and he asks them this question. What is the question? What's he want to know? Why am I teaching you? It's not what he says. What's he say, Josh? What good deed must I do All right, now put that in your own words. What's he asking? How do I get into heaven? How do I get into heaven? Okay. All right, Derek's clarifying. He's like, what do I got to do to get into heaven? I want to know what good deed I have to do to have eternal life. What this man wants to know is I need to be able to check the box saying that I've done what's necessary to inherit eternal life. Now you tell me, what's the answer to the question? What does he have to do to inherit eternal life? We haven't gone through the passage yet. What's the answer? What would you answer him? Have faith in God. Okay, have faith in God. What good thing does he have to do? He has to believe. You mean he can't do anything? You mean Abby? He, there's not something he can do. Like he wants to He wants to be able to do something. So what does he have to do? What do you tell him he has to do? He didn't ask what he has to believe. He wants to know what does he have to do. So he has to serve Jesus, and that's going to secure eternal life for him. He doesn't have to do anything. He just has to continue as he is. Okay, he has to put his faith in Christ with no physical acts. See, here's what this man is doing. When he comes to Jesus, and you and I do the same thing. Jewish culture would frequently go to a rabbi as a, a position of authority, and they would be like, Rabbi, can you clarify this law for me? Like, the Bible says this. They wouldn't necessarily use the word Bible, but the Torah says this. What am I supposed to do with that? How do I apply the Torah to my life? We talked about this two weeks ago with the uh, different philosophies or positions on divorce. The one rabbi would say, this is when you can divorce. Another rabbi would say, this is when you can divorce. And now he's coming to Jesus and he's saying, I think you've got the answer for me. What good thing do I have to do to inherit eternal life? No, we're not told, has this man been to other rabbis asking this? We're not told if this is like a new question. Maybe he's trying to trip up Jesus, but I don't really think he is. I think he's genuinely asking. I think our text will tell us that he's genuinely asking based upon his response. So let's ask this question. Several of you said he has to believe, but let's put our mind in his position. Let's go to... First century Judaism. Let's go to Jesus is still alive in his earthly ministry, so it's 32, 33 A.D. Does the Old Testament give people directions on what they need to do to inherit eternal life? Because you can't tell me believe in Jesus because Jesus hasn't died on the cross yet. 
So what about that Old Testament that this man believes in? Does it give him directions on what he has to do to inherit eternal life? Abby says no and yes, okay? Does the Old Testament tell him? Blake's nodding his head yes. Blake, what does he have to do to inherit eternal life? Doesn't he have to go to the temple and make sacrifices for his sins? Okay, he has to go to the temple and offer sacrifices. That's an aspect of it. What else? What else do people in the Old Testament have to have to do? This is critical for the rest of the passage if you were paying attention as we read through it. Is there by chance a list of things you have to do or don't do that God gave the Old Testament Jews? The Ten Commandments? Is that like a list of do's and don'ts? Wait, so you mean like God gave the Jews a list of things to do and things to not do based upon how they would, whether or not they'd get eternal life? Now, here's the question we have to ask ourselves. How many people from Moses who received the law of God forward, how many people fully obeyed all of the Ten Commandments? No one. None of them. All right? None of them. In case you're not aware, more than just those ten that everyone knows, and we're going to quiz you in a few minutes to see how well you know those ten, more than that... There were a total of 613 different laws for a Jew out of the Old Testament. That's a lot of rules. You thought your parents were strict. Try having God as a father. All right. Thanks, Malachi. I, I appreciate the courtesy laugh. So here's my question. Students, I need help with this. If the Old Testament gives me a list of do's and don'ts to inherit eternal life, why is it that you're now telling me, or that Jesus even tells this man, why are you coming to me to talk about what's good? Why is this man looking for an answer if he already has the answer? Many scholars believe that this man is actually a ruler of the synagogue, meaning that he's, the, he's a leader in their, their church community, if you will. He knows the Old Testament law. He keeps track of the scrolls. If that's the case, he certainly knows the Ten Commandments. He certainly knows the expectation. So why is he asking for clarity on what good thing do I have to do? Let's ask this. All right, go ahead, Anna. To test out who Jesus actually is. Maybe he thinks this is, this is the Messiah. Maybe not. We're not told that, but here's what we do understand. What's this man concerned about? Wait, go ahead, Josh. What were you thinking? Okay, yeah, he wants to be justified. He wants to be a-okay. He wants Jesus' stamp of approval on his life. Now, let's be real. How many of you like to have the approval of others? Don't most of us like to be approved, have others, you know, give us a thumbs up, give their seal of approval? Hey, you're doing a great job. Hey, I'm proud of you. You did well. I wasn't talking to you, James. Okay. We want that. This man doesn't need those things. He's got money. This dude is loaded. What he wants to know is how do I get God to sign off on my eternal security? He's genuinely interested in what do I have to do to make sure I have eternal life. Because there's something that needs to be done. Well, we know this. You guys have answered it already. You can't do anything. So we have to ask ourselves, what role then does doing good things play in salvation? If doing good stuff does not get me salvation, why do good stuff then? Why do we do good works? If that doesn't get me saved, does it keep me saved? No. So I don't have to do any good works, and I'm all set. I just have to believe in Jesus one time, no good works after that, and I am set. Abby? That's not what it says. It's not what it says? No. So what, am I, what, but what do good works have to do then? 
Do I have to do good works? Go ahead, Abby. Okay, so you're supposed to reflect who Jesus is if you are one of his. Blake? Alright, so Blake says you don't do good things to get saved, you do them because you are saved. You agree with that, Nick? Yes, sir, I agree with that. Alright. So, here's a question I have for you guys. Serious question. What are good works that would show that I'm saved? See, because I can't see if you believe in Jesus. You can't see belief. So what then is a good work that I would do because I am saved? If that's truly the case. Anna. What do you mean show the fruits of the Spirit? What's that look like? Okay, being kind, having patience, being loving. Ensley. Okay. Giving dignity and respect to people even if you don't personally care for them. You, you don't treat them differently just because you don't like them. All right? Excellent. Blake. Baptism. All right, you get baptized. Blake, why would I get baptized if I'm saved? Because it says to. <laughs> Students, that might be some of you. Some of you may have, be have believed in Christ for salvation for a long time. Have you ever demonstrated your faith in Christ publicly to the church by saying, I'm going into this water because my old person is now dead. I am a new creature in Christ. All right, Zach. Spreading the word of God. Like I take my Bible and throw it out places? What do you mean by that then? Verbally turning people So I have to verbally turn someone else's religious beliefs around. Alright. Alright. Zoe says to just teach it. Malachi, what'd you say? I said you can pray for others. You can pray for other people. Okay. James. Okay, so that's kind of back to like what Ensley said with giving dignity and respect. All right, Abby. Shh, guys, I don't mind your feedback, but I need it coming to me and one at a time. Great conversation to have. Like I said, Abby, great conversation to have. All right, go ahead, Blake. One more time. Live it. What do you mean, live it? Proclaim it. Do what you say, then you're a hypocrite. All right. If you proclaim it and don't do what you say, then you're a hypocrite. If you were to go look at the book of James, James would actually tell you this. He says that some of you would say you are saved because of your works. Or that some of you have works and others have faith. <clears throat> and James says, I'm actually going to show you what I believe based upon how I act. But the reality is, students, is most of the time, we're not doing that. So Jesus responds to this man. He's like, why do you say to me, why are you asking me what's good? There is only one good. <coughs> there is only one who is good. And if you would enter life, keep the commandments. He points him back to the Old Testament. And so Jesus very skillfully flips around the usage of the word good here. Remember, Jesus did this with the previous section. Because the question about divorce was, why did Moses command us to give a bill of divorcement? And Jesus is like, no, 
that bill of divorcement was allowed. He took the context and he flipped it the way it was properly used. Now Jesus is doing the same thing with the word good. He's gone from what this rich young man is asking, like, what good deed do I have to have? And Jesus doesn't identify there's a good deed to do. He says the reality is there's only one individual who is good, and that is God. So the man's like, okay, well, Jesus, if I have to keep the commandments, that's great. Which ones? All 10 or all 613? All 613. But Jesus doesn't say that. All right, now pay attention to this list, guys. Hopefully you know your Ten Commandments. If not, maybe you need to turn back to Exodus chapter 20 to take a look. Yes, ma'am. Oh, hold on, we're going to get there. He says, if someone wants to hold up their fingers and you can count these for me. He says, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And love your neighbor. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Zoe, you got a little confused there. What happened? It's not one of the ten. All right. Now let's look at this list. He gave us how many commandments of the ten? He didn't give us ten. Alright. Shall not murder, adultery, steal, bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Alright. Now, which means how many commandments are left? Alright. Let's go through this now. What are the ten commandments then? Because we have just identified that Jesus said to this man, keep the commandments. That's how you get eternal life. And this man's response is, okay, Jesus, which commands? And then Jesus shortened the list. Which makes me kind of want to go, so what about all the guys in the Old Testament? Did, did they not have to keep all those commands then? They only had to keep this list? Like some of those were like optional? No, Jesus is pointing him somewhere. All right, so let's go through the list of the Ten Commandments so that we're all on the same page. Commandment number one. Abby, you wanted to claim it. What is it? Thou shalt have no other gods. No other gods than Yahweh. All right, commandment number two. Someone give it to me. It is not you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. James, commandment number two. That is not commandment number two. Amari, what's commandment number two? Good. Number two, don't make any graven images or idols. Number three, what's commandment number three? Don't use the Lord's name in vain. All right, commandment number four then, Ella. Keep the Sabbath. Commandment number five, Maylene. Honor your father and mother. Commandment number six, Albert. You shall not murder. Commandment number seven, Blake. It's not do not steal. Jubal. It's not you shall not covet. Rachel. Don't commit adultery. Commandment number eight. Now yours. No. Oh, no. What would you say? You said steal. Okay. Number eight is thou shalt not steal. Number nine. Let's get someone who heard it. Don't bear false witness. And number ten. Don't covet. Now, we just walked through the list. Which of the commands of the Decalogue, that's what we call the Ten Commandments, which ones were left out? Let's go slow so we can all process this. Anna, give me one that was left out. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. <clears throat> okay, Blake just wants to categorize it in, in this. Hey, well, they're not... Blake said, it's all the ones that pertain to your relationship with God. All right, let's get more specific now. So we've got, don't take the Lord's name in vain. 
All right, what are the other ones of the 10 that he did not list? We know the category now. What are the specific ones? Blake. Um, okay, he doesn't talk about keeping the Sabbath. Nick, give me another one. Okay, he doesn't address bearing false witness. Oh, he does. Okay, let's try again, Kylie. Not to make idols. What's another one, Jubal? Not to covet. Any others? All right. Murder's up there. So, here's what's left off the list, students. Only one God. Okay. No other gods before him. Making idols. Taking his name in vain. Remembering his day. And number five, coveting. Now think about this for just a second. Blake pointed out that the ones that were left were all pertaining to his relationship to God with the exception of what? I heard it. Not coveting. Now, here's what we've got going on. Jesus is intentionally leaving off all the commands that this man's breaking. He told him, which ones do I have to do? Okay, do this, 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 this. And he's like, I've done all those since I was a kid. Here's what else this man's been doing. All right, let's, have, let's walk through the list. Can you see whether or not I have another God before Yahweh? Can you see whether or not I've set up an idol in my heart? Can you see and fact check when I take his name in vain? Do you see whether or not I honor and remember his holy day? Do you see when I covet something that someone else has? No. But do you see when I've murdered? Can you see if I've committed adultery? Can you see if I have stolen? Can you see if I have lied? What this has done is we've gone not just with what Blake said in the idea of his relationship with God, but we've gone from all the outward things to all the attitudes of the heart. Jesus gave him the list of all the outside stuff. The things he could do. The rest of the list is actually the things he believes. The things he trusts in. He has set up idols in his own life. It's his money. That's why, as we read, and we'll talk about in just a minute, why he walks away so despondent and sad because he's loaded. Super low, wealthy. He's like, what, verse 20, he's like, I've kept all these. What am I still missing? What do I still lack? Yeah, we answered all the questions. And Jesus says this to him. Oh, so you've noticed you're still missing something. If you would like to be perfect, if you want to be complete, if you want to inherit eternal life, if you want to belong in the kingdom, if you want to be saved, all of those, Brian, are in our passage. He wants to know what good deed do I do to inherit eternal life. Jesus talks to them in just a moment about entering the kingdom. And Peter says, well, who then can be saved? All words describing what this man's looking for. If you would be saved, if you would be in the eternal kingdom, if you would receive eternal life, here's what you need to do, young man. You need to go sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. This young man who has lots of money, lots of means, is told to do that. And here's his response. Here's our controversy. Now that he's, he's obeyed so many good commandments. But when the young man heard that, verse 22, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I've kept so many rules since I was a little kid, but I can't do that. That's too much. Don't ask me to do that. Sorry, Jesus. I can't. 
See, it's the, it's the result of action versus attitude. He wants to know what outward thing can I do so that I'm good to go. And Jesus says, change your heart. But rather than change his heart towards God and the things that he has, he says, no thanks, and walks away eternally condemned. Changing his attitude was too big of an ask. Too high a price to pay for that. So we have to ask ourselves questions like this. Are you living in such a way like this young man who had lots to go on? Are you living in such a way so that only your visible actions are being judged? You want people to see the outward actions, and as long as you've been keeping those since you were a child, you're good to go. That you only want them to see what's on the outside. You want them to see you go to church. You want them to see you got baptized. You want them to see you brought your Bible to church. You want them to see that you're a good kid. But when Jesus presses the heart of the matter and says, I want you to give up everything you have for me, that you say, nope. Can't do that, Jesus. I could go to church a couple times a week. I could go to youth group. I can open my Bible when, when the teacher or the pastor says so, but I can't do that. Can you imagine audibly, face-to-face, -face, with the creator of the universe telling him, you can't do that for him? Are you living in such a way that your heart condemns you? That if Jesus said, hey... Brian, I want you to give up this for me that you say, no, I can't. Zoe, I want you to get this out of your life for me, and you say, no, I want to keep that. Justin, I want you to act this way towards these people, and you say, no, I can't. I'm not willing to change my heart, my attitude for you. Because you're okay with the outward lining up. You've got all the outward things going. You've got the good deeds down. But your heart is condemning you. Because it does not worship God. It does not surrender what you have to the Holy Spirit. So why don't you take a moment and think about what the most valuable thing you possess is. For some of you, it may be a thing. A couple of you older students have your first vehicles. It could be that maybe God would want you to be willing to give up your first vehicle for him. Some of you, it may be a relational status. Maybe it's with that boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe it's the clout that you have with your teammates. Maybe it's your status in school. Maybe it's the persona with which you carry yourself. Maybe God would ask you, hey, will you give up your cell phone for me? Would you get off all social media for me? Where's the line for you? What are you willing to tell God, no, I won't give that up for you? For this man, it was his money. And he walks away so despondent, so sorrowful, because I've got too much of that to let it go. So then Jesus turns to his disciples after this man's walking away. And Jesus says to them, truly I, I say to you, only with great difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Because again, I tell you, and so he must have told them this at some point before, or maybe he's reiterating his point to them, and he says, I'm telling you guys, it is easier for you to take a camel and put it through the eye of a needle. That's an easier task than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard that comment before, for the camel to go through an eye of a needle. How many of you have ever heard that before? All right. What's your understanding of what that is, though, Anna? Okay, some things are easier than others. 
So there are some individuals, and I don't, I don't want you to ever think that this is the case, so let's clarify it for you. Um, some people teach it, and it's unfounded. Like, you can't find it in archaeology. You can't find it in historical record. But <clears throat> they want to describe it as, well, the eye of a needle is actually the name for a small gate on the side of Jerusalem. And because a camel is such a large, tall animal, the only way a camel could get through that gate is if it lowered itself and crawled through. The idea being that you have to humble yourself to go into heaven. Okay, do you have to humble yourself to go into heaven? Sure, there's an aspect of that. But that's not the point of Jesus' comment, Dane. He wants you to hear, there is no way you're sticking a camel through, a, through the eye of a needle. Regardless of how big that needle is. You're not putting a camel through there. You can't do it. That's the point. Rich people don't go to heaven easily. You know why? Because they trust too much in themselves. But we're not talking about just money. I understand as students, and we were kind of talking about it a little bit ago, okay, 40 cents to your name. Maybe you don't trust in dollars and change. You trust in your reputation. You trust in your looks. You trust in your athleticism. You trust in your academic agility you trust in your family name you trust in and you fill in the blank that's what you're trusting in and jesus says no you can't trust in those things because when the disciples heard it they were greatly astonished saying who then can be saved they're not thinking oh yeah we know how camels go through the the eye of the needle gate that is not at all what they think they're going, what? If that's true, Jesus, who gets to be saved then? If what you're saying is true, we have questions. And Jesus' commentary on the difficulty of a self-made salvation, your ability to save yourself is so preposterous, it's so ludicrous, you might as well shove a camel through a needle. Because that's your chance of success. And now they're in utter dismay over that. And Jesus looks at them because they're distraught. They don't respond. Put verse 25 right next to 26. The disciples say, who then can be saved? No one gets saved then, Jesus. That's the tone of their request. Who gets to be saved then? And Jesus says to them, with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Okay, You need a camel to go through the, the eye of a needle? Good luck, my friend. However, God could put him through there. Don't ask me how. He's the maker of the camel. He can tell the camel to do what he wants to do. And I know I'm putting a silly image in your head, but that's what we have to think about this. Now, what we also have to think about is this. He is not telling you, you can do anything in life you want to as long as God's blessing you. That's not the point of what he said. What are we talking about in our context? What's the context? What are the disciples looking for? They're looking for salvation. They're not looking for whether or not they can get an A on the test. They're not looking for whether or not their small business startup is going to be successful. They're not looking for whether or not they're going to get into that college. Don't get caught up in telling someone, don't worry, with God all things are possible, quoting Matthew 19.26, unless you're talking to them about, you're right, Derek, you're going to die and go to hell. But with God, there is possible salvation. That's the context of, with God, all things are possible. I got it. You could put a cute background on it and some fun filters and plaster it all over your Instagram, but it's only got one context and one meaning. And that is your salvation. Now, let's focus on the first part of this. With you and you alone, your salvation is impossible. That's how qualified you are to save yourself. You cannot. No level of money, no, no level of affluence, no level of 
position, no level of knowledge. Nothing will save you. You can't go to church enough to get saved. The only thing that will save you is a God who does the impossible. That's what saves you. Doing good will never be enough for you to earn salvation. So then we get to the last section of this passage, which is the compensation. Because Jesus has just let out this claim. Hey, rich dude, why don't you get rid of everything you have, abandon it all, and come and follow me? And some of the disciples, Peter specifically, Josh, he's like, hey, wait a second. I know some people that did that. That guy's not willing to drop everything and follow Jesus, but Peter was. Remember, he left the fishing nets. He didn't go back to the boat. And now Peter wants to know, Casey, hey, what's in this for me? I, I did that. I'm doing pretty well. And Jesus does not rebuke Peter. He doesn't say, Peter, why are you so concerned with your reward? Instead, he answers his question. Peter, you want to know what's ahead? When you abandon everything for me, Peter, here's what you got. Because Peter says in his reply, see, we have left everything, verse 27. He's like, I've abandoned everything and followed you. What will we have? We disciples, we 12 men who have left everything to follow you, want to know what's there. So let's ask ourselves this question. Is Peter wrong for seeking to know his compensation for abandoning all to follow Jesus? Is it wrong to ask? <clears throat> Why or why not? Josh? Okay. So you just want to pull a verse out of context like that? Okay. <laughs> Samantha, you kind of said something. What are your thoughts? Is it wrong for Peter to ask? Okay, because curiosity is natural. Would any of you say Peter was wrong? Peter should not have asked Jesus what it was in it for him. Nick said it's a human nature. It's human nature that he wants to know what's what is the reward for following Christ. Students, let's be let's let's be honest for just a second. You, if you've been with me for any period of time, you know I do not assume that all of you are believers. But let's ask this question. What would it take? What reward would have to be shown in front of you for you to say, I'm dropping it all to follow Jesus? Think about that for just a moment. I'm willing to drop everything and follow him. I will give up all of my hopes, all of my dreams, my aspirations, my GPA, my relationships, I will give up everything that was important to me if this is the reward. What would that reward have to be? Now, as you're thinking about that, let's look at what Jesus says to Peter in his response. And Jesus says, verse 28, Truly I say to you, <clears throat> in the new world, if you look at other translations, this is not an, an Aladdin's whole new world, okay? I'm not going to show him the new world. All right. Instead, what this is referring to is some translations will say, when all things are made new. Literally, it's in the regeneration. When God recreates the world, when all has come to an end, not now, not tomorrow, not when you're 30, when God has settled everything. When the Son of Man is sitting on his glorious throne. Those of you, Peter, who have followed me, you will also sit on 12 thrones. And you will be judges over the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, this is kind of a unique context because we're like, <clears throat> wait, what? Jesus is telling him, those people that were given all of this because of their Jewish heritage are going to be judged for not recognizing the Messiah that came through their family line. 
But you disciples, you true Israel is how some Bible passages refer to it. You children of Abraham, you what we would call the church, the true believers, you Christians, you believers who have followed Jesus rather than just the Israelite teachings, you will judge those guys because you followed them. You followed me. You didn't stick with them. Now that's kind of strange. <clears throat> but you have to keep in mind, <clears throat> what's the context of when the 12 disciples will get to judge the 12 tribes of Israel? What's the context? The verse says, when does that happen? When the Son of Man is on His glorious throne. What else has happened, though? There's another qualifier in the verse. In the new world. When all things are made new. Let me show you this verse. <clears throat> and consider this for just a moment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the first four verses, we see that when Paul says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So this is the context of judging, taking a Christian to court. If you're a believer, taking another believer to court. Do you not know? So the Corinthians are struggling with this concept. Don't you know that the saints, the believers, are going to be judges over the world? And if the world, to be, if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try your own trivial cases? He's saying, if you're supposed to be a judge over this world someday, if you're supposed to rule and reign with Jesus in the new heaven and new earth, if you're supposed to be on a throne with him, ruling with him, then why can't you figure things out now? And then he tells them this. Don't you also know, verse 3, that we are actually to judge angels? Now, we don't have time to get into that, and I don't think the world agrees on what that means. But I wanted to point it out to you because of this. We often think because either you were shown pictures in children's Sunday school or some image has, has given you this warped view that heaven is like a cloud city that never comes down and, you know, that the world is actually the fun place and heaven's just kind of like a man, it's all over now. Okay. When the truth is this, the eternal kingdom, the new heaven and new earth, all right, I got it, it was funny, we're over now, the new heaven and the new earth are actually what Eden is like before the fall. However long Adam and Eve were in the garden, working the land, enjoying the fruit of it, ruling over the animals, however long they were there doing that before sin entered the world, that's what God is returning the world to. You're not going to just sit in some chair. You're not going to have some gold-plated house and just sit there watching Netflix, you know, okay, over and over and over again. No, you're going to be a part of a new creation of a perfect world where you get to rule and reign with Christ over that world. And you get to be a judge with him. Now, I don't know about you, but hopefully that's something that sounds at least remotely appealing. Like, wait a second. Would I rather be the one casting judgment with the one who is judging, or do I want to be the ones being judged because I rebelled and I didn't obey? And then he tells them everyone, verse 29, who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, Seven different items. Anyone who has left those things for me will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Now you tell me, what does a hundredfold mean? A hundred times. So we have to ask ourselves, is that a literal promise? Is Jesus saying if I am willing to leave everything and follow him, he's going to give me a hundred houses? You get a tractor with all that land, you're going to have a hundred dads, a hundred brothers, a hundred sisters. Is that what he is saying? Then what's he saying? What does he mean when he says, 
if you will leave this, you'll get a hundred times that in the eternal kingdom. Jubal? Okay, good. You're going to get something that's a hundred times better than that. Students, here's the whole point. Go back and look at this list. He is trying to get them to understand, hey, you know that reason why you are sitting on the fence and not following me? That thing that you're holding on in your heart as to why you refuse to believe in me. That thing that you hold so valuable. I need you to understand that if you're willing to give that up, what I have for you later is going to be a hundred times better than whatever that is. You think it's so great. I hate to break it to you, but it will die. It will rust. It will rot. It will tarnish. It will lose its glory in your eyes. But what will not fade is an eternal life with an eternal God where you reign with him for eternity. You think it's so great now, imagine what a hundred times that would be. It's not a literal promise in the sense of you're going to have a hundred times the amount of land that you have now, so get all the land that you can. No. He's saying whatever it is that you hold so valuable... What I have for you is a hundred times better than that. But what you have to understand is this. Those who would be the first are actually the last. And the last first. See, this rich young ruler has been striving to get ahead so that he is first. He wants the wealth. He wants the eternal life. He wants all the things so that he can claim it all for himself. He wants to be first. And Jesus says that has nothing to do with it. In fact, it's quite the opposite. From chapter 18 all the way through chapter 20, verse 16, in this whole teaching section that we, we are calling the community discourse, the whole focus has been humility. In chapter 18, we started with Verse 1, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus asking him, who's the greatest? It's a lesson on humility. We walked through, how do we respond to people when they wrong us? We walked through the issues of divorce. We walked through all these different things, and the, the real source, how do you solve conflict in the church? The, the answer of all of that was humility. And then we get to chapter 20, verse 16, where Jesus will repeat the words that we just read, and he says, so the last will be first, and the first will be last. So students, we're closing with this, and I want you to consider it. Are you like the young man in our story that as long as it's something you can do, you're cool with it? But the moment Jesus asks you to give all that you hold dear up for him, you say no. Is that you? Because if that's you, I need you to understand that you're going to walk away with immense sorrow because you're pursuing the pleasure and the desire of your heart rather than God's. And I need you to understand that what God has for you, if you will give all of that up for Him, is a hundred times better than anything you could ever get here. And that's not my words. Those are his. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it is. And I ask that you would help us to live out uh, the humility, not just in interactions with others, but in our humility before you, that we would trust you for salvation, giving up the things of the world around us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.